Welcome to Pacific Mammal Researchers Marine Mammal Highlight Series. We are a 501c3 research and education nonprofit studying marine mammals in the Salish Sea off Washington State. In this series, you will learn about different marine mammals as we discuss interesting facts about each species. This is our way to geek out, share some information, and have some fun. We hope you enjoy the series and be sure to follow us on Instagram to vote for which animal we talk about next. And without further ado, Welcome to the Pac-Man podcast. Um, I'm Cindy. I'm Kat. And I'm Trevor. And this week, I'm excited about it because uh, we are going to do a marine mammal highlight. And this one is about right whales. And uh, I'm going to spoil one of Kat's fun things just for a minute because the reason why we're doing this and the reason why we didn't have a poll up for um, choosing which one we're going to do this week uh, it's because we just got super excited because we just saw a North Pacific, well, we didn't, but our friends I'm going to say, we Canada, specifically didn't, sadly. <laughs> I mean, the collective we of marine mammal people. <laughs> um, uh, up in, uh, in Canada, they saw a North Pacific right whale, which, as you'll find out in the episode, is very, very rare. So we got yeah. super excited. So we said, you know what, we're going to do right whales this week. Um, so, and we'll talk more about that sighting later. Um, but... Uh, I think Trevor's going to start us off with, and we have, there's three different species of of right whales. There's the North Pacific, the North Atlantic, and the Southern right whale. So we're going to, they're very similar in many ways. So we're going to talk about kind of all of them and just give you little tidbits about each uh, population um, as appropriate. So Trevor's going to start us off. Okay, so there used to just be two species of right whale, the Northern right whale and the Southern right whale, but in 2008, researchers finally decided that the northern right whale is actually two separate species mm. they look incredibly similar but they <laughs> actually have to use uh, genetic data to prove that they're two different species cool. um so i will kind of just explain what they look like first because they look virtually identical until you get to some nitty-gritty stuff uh, but right whales in general they're pretty big um, they lack a dorsal fin in the back, so that's pretty distinctive from them, but probably the biggest recognizable feature with them is their head mm-hmm. and their callocytes. So callocytes are essentially like big um, calluses, I guess you could say, like on your hands and feet, you have those. Yeah, like the those. Uh, callosities. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, is that potato, potato? I'm not sure. <laughs> I was going to say, I was, I was, yeah, I think it might be callosities just with the way they spell it, but yeah, or, actually, well, maybe it not. I don't know. Well, I don't know. That's, what, that's the way I read it. I say callosities. So uh, either way, so, callosities, yeah. callosities. I trust you. <laughs> um, both the Northern Pacific right whale and the Northern Atlantic right whale, which is what they decided to name the two species, <laughs> have those callosities, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are pretty much perfect spots for sea lice or whale lice i should say mm-hmm. um but those are the most identifiable features of those whales but their head is massive as well so i think it's about a quarter of their body length i think i read up to a third yeah up to a third okay yeah, yeah. it's giant they have big heads <laughs> they have a re- really 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 arched jawline too so if you look at mm-hmm. the skull of a um, right whale it's just incredibly arched in that jawline mm-hmm. The tail is really, really broad too with a deep notch. So that's one way to identify it. It's just if you just see the fluke coming up, especially when they're in the same area as humpbacks and gray whales, for example, if you just see that huge broad tail with a deep notch. Um, but size wise, the 
here's like kind of the main difference between the northern Pacific and northern Atlantic right whale. They're up to 60 feet long in the Pacific. Um, and up to 180,000 pounds, with some recorded to 220,000 pounds. Wow. Which, for reference, humpbacks are only 10 feet shorter than that at the max, and that's twice their weight. Jeez. Oh my gosh. They're a bit rotund. Yeah. <laughs> and then the northern Atlantic right whale is only gets up to 52 feet, 154,000 pounds is the max. Oh, so, oh they're actually quite, quite, quite a bit smaller. Yeah. So they look pretty much the same it's just different size i guess mm-hmm. um then range wise the northern atlantic right whale has it's pretty heavily studied and dwindling <laughs> they're <laughs> they've basically migrate from the labrador sea up in canada and then they travel south along the coast to their cabin grounds in georgia and florida in the western stock of the Atlantic Ocean. And there's about 360 left, I think was the last count. Yeah, the last I saw yeah. was under under 400. Yeah, which I'll get into in the SETA section yeah. as well. Okay, and then there's an eastern stock too, technically what migrates from Northern Europe down to the Sahara, which has a much less lesser population, which I'm sure Kat will get into. Um, and then the Northern Pacific right whale has two different stocks as well. Their main area for feeding grounds are in the Bering Sea and Gulf of Alaska. And then they travel down, we think, to warmer waters. I know they've seen them in Hawaii and Baja before. Mm -hmm. And then the Western stock is, goes to the Sea of Okotsk, I think. Okosta, yeah, something like that. And it's over Mm -hmm. in Japan. Yeah. We really only know they used to be way more numerous based on our previous whaling logs, but those oh, yeah. logs are, yeah. So I that, think I, I read, I don't know, and maybe I'm going to step on cat's toes here, but it was like over 10,000 or something. <laughs> and yeah. now there's like five. It was a huge amount. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure Kat will explain why they're called the right whale as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> We're going to get into some good stuff. And then the southern right whale, which is down basically around Antarctica, and it'll travel up north, called like their classic humpback migration, north to Australia, South America, etc. They're basically the same size as well. They are maximum 60 feet and 80 tons, up to 90 tons was the record. And they also have those velocities as well. So they're almost similar in size to the Pacific. Mm -hmm. Right. But they look pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're all right whales and they all look the same. They're just slightly different sizes. <laughs> Medium, yeah. small, small, large. <laughs> um, cool. Cool. And well, and so I don't I don't know if Kat found it and I didn't look at it, but I, it's interesting to me that there's the North Pacific, the North Atlantic, and then just the Southern. Right. Yeah. I and guess. I mean they they do have different stocks in the southern, but mm. as far as I as far as I could find, there was no delineation about like, oh, the Australian ones are called a different species. Like they, it's right. all the same considered the same species in the southern hemisphere. It's just they they're split into slightly different stocks. And I couldn't really find a lot on the other stocks. It was mostly information about the Australian waters. Right. Yeah, that's um, the only one I kind of saw too. They're like southern yeah, whale, but over here. <laughs> that's where again, spoiler alert for right. later, but that is where vast majority of them seem to go is in this, the Australian waters. So yeah, that's what we just have more information on. Interesting. I guess the northern and 
Atlantic or sorry, the Northern Pacific and Atlantic, it kind of makes sense for these different species because they've been separated by that massive landmass, right. which allows them to diversify a little bit versus down south, they can circumnavigate Antarctica if they really wanted um, to. And right. that mm-hmm. ocean's connected, yeah, even though they're point. Stopped, but yeah. Yeah, these guys are, are isolated. Yeah, whenever that isolation happens, is more you're more likely to get a speciation over mm-hmm. time because they just live in different places. Yeah, cool. Cool. All right, well, I'm going to head on into diet and behavior. I think that's what you got, Trevor, right? Yep, that should be good for me. Sweet. So um, I'm going to kind of talk about all of them and then pick out the pieces because, again, they're, they're all right whales and they're all fairly similar and they all kind of do the same thing. But there were some differences in uh, what we've observed uh, behavior-wise, and I think a lot of that actually comes down to being able to observe them in the first place. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a lot of information on the North Pacific for obvious reasons uh, that we'll talk about. Um, but so these are like any large baleen whale species, they are um, you know, filter feeders, they eat very, very small things. Um, they love zooplankton, which are the little microscopic and um, a little bit bigger, you can see them, but they're still really small uh, animals, right? So zooplankton versus phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are the little plants. Zooplankton are the little animals that float around in the, uh, uh, in the water. And so mainly they like these tiny little crustaceans called copepods, euphosids, and cyprids. Uh, and mm. I think the euphosids are like shrimp-like and the cyprids were, I think, um, barnacle larvae is what mm-hmm. I could find. Um, and the copepods are just, just like little crustaceans. <laughs> they, they didn't have one that was like, they look like this. So, um, but they do, they do the, they feed differently than most other baleen whale species. So what, I think what most people are used to thinking, seeing are like humpbacks where they do the lunge feeding. So they come down from, from below and they open their mouth and they lunge out of the water and then kick all the water and the, and the fish and whatnot uh, in their mouths and then push it out with their push those out with their tongue and filter out the um, organisms but these guys are different they do what's called ram or skim feeding um, and so what they do is they basically just open their mouth I'm, I kind of like a I, I, I was thinking it was kind of like a shark which like nah, 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 nah. <laughs> you know but they'll just open their mouth and just swim like that <laughs> as they catch the stuff that they're trying to catch and so what's, what, what's interesting though is I thought, I think about that at the surface, that you would see like just the top of the roof of their mouth just floating by and that mm-hmm. would look really weird. <laughs> but they can do that at, in, in, at, in the water column, they can do it from the bottom to the top. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, so they can do that kind of anywhere. Um, and I th- thought this is really interesting is that they, they like zooplankton, which can be as large as a grain of rice. Wow, that's <laughs> oh. a mouthful huge and these guys are what like 90 you know up to 90 tons or some, one of the species right <laughs> so wild and the, like how so they actually um uh can eat up to 2200 to 5500 pounds of food per day do you know how many grains of rice that is <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot it's just crazy um but the other thing that's unique then also is because of the way that that feed they feed their baleen has to be different than the lunch feeders so the lunge feeder's um, baleen is around uh, three feet. And these guys, um, the right whales and the bowheads uh, are up to seven to eight feet long. Wow. Yeah, and a very different uh, texture and what it looks like um, because they're feeding in a, a slightly different way on slightly different things, but 
super, super small. Mm -hmm. So um, um, going on to behavior, they are really, really, really slow. <laughs> That's like one of the most, every time you read something like, they're really slow, they're really slow. Yeah, I think they're one thing I read was like, they're, they're one of the slowest swimming whales. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And I think they're just, they're just so big. You can't, with that big rotund body, you're not going to be, you're not going to be speeding through. Like, you know, it's not. Yeah, that's happen. a lot of, that's a lot of friction going through the it's water. It's a lot of drag. Yeah. yeah. Um, but despite that, they can be very active at the surface. So um, most of the species will breach, um, which I think is kind of crazy too, because it takes a lot of energy to get that body out of the water to be able to lift it up and breach. But apparently it's, it's fun enough that they do it. Um, and then they have what's called surf surface active groups. And this is what I could find. Um, they noted this for the North Atlantic right whale. And again, I think most of this behavior um, comes from the North Atlantic and the, and the Southern right whale because we, there, we, we know about them much more than we do the Pacific because there are so mm -hmm. few individuals um, in the Pacific uh, population. So um, they, call, they call these service groups, they call them um, sur surface active groups. And this is where you'll see mating and socializing. And this happens in all seasons and habitats. So they just have parties every once in a while and have a good cool. time, <laughs> which is nice to see. Um, they communicate through low frequency moans, groans, mm -hmm. pulses, um, and those can maintain contact between individuals. They can communicate threats, signal aggression, any other social things. So they, they, they can talk to each other, which is pretty cool. Um, so the, the southern right whales, though, there were more descriptions of specific behaviors that I could find. Um, and so they will breach. Um, they'll also lobtail. So that's lifting the fluke out of the water and then flopping it over. Flippering, which I've never heard it called this before, but that's slapping the water with their pectoral flippers. Interesting. They don't um, call it peck slapping? I, they apparently, like, though this one that I found said flippering. Huh. So I was like, mm, okay. And I'm pretty yeah, sure, I think that was from Noah. <laughs> but yeah, I was, you know, cool. with, with humpback whales, I was just, you, you say, oh, they just peck slap. Right. And same with like orcas and mm -hmm. anything like that. Yeah. yeah hmm, so they call it flippering. Mm -hmm. uh, and the last one, this one's so cool. They'd sail. So they'll basically do a headstand, stick their tail up in the, in the air, and then let the wind blow their tails. What? <laughs> No way. Yes. Dude, can you imagine if you saw that? Just this huge whale fluke just like cruising at the surface. And what if you had a group of them? Like this this group wow. of tails is like that is so crazy. Like and why? Why why why? I mean, I guess you... if you're that slow, it might actually be faster than you swimming. It's lower energy, so it makes total sense. Well that's true. They don't have to swim. They just, out? I mean you just gotta just you have to keep your tail up, but right. um, probably yeah. fun. Right? Yeah, true. Fun. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Wow, I that's southern, I think I saw the southern right whale does it far more than the two northern species too. That, that's what I'm oh, saying. Like they, I only heard saw these these oh, species yeah. okay. are only listed for southern right whales. So hmm. maybe the wind's better down there. Right. <laughs> or again, because they are more well observed, maybe it's just because right. we've, we just, we've seen it more there. Yeah. Well, and the, so the other thing I was thinking about is if these guys are having trouble finding food in the North Pacific or North Atlantic versus the southern. Um, these guys, the Southern just might have more time to do these behaviors. Right. Um, we talk about that in the Bahamas where we have spotted and bottlenose dolphins and the bottlenose dolphins just have to eat more. They're bigger. And we, and we see more play behaviors with the spotted dolphins. Mm -hmm. Now it could be some 
just they don't do the behaviors in front of us there's that but um it may be that they're just they just have to spend more time eating so right. maybe the southern don't have to yeah, yeah. Huh. cool possible possibilities um reproduction wise we know not that much um right well uh, species in general, the females seem to give birth around nine to 10 years of age. So they might mate it like eight or nine and then give birth for the first time there. Um, they have a 12 to 13 month gestation period and they nurse for about a year um, and then they'll calf every three to five years. But what's really interesting and, and Kat will talk about it with the status, um, the in, this interval may be increasing to every six to 10 years mm -hmm. due to the anthropogenic stressors like entanglement and vessel strikes that are causing so many issues. Um, and this also affects the sex ratio. So in some of the populations there, um, and I think like the North Atlantic, there are over twice as many females than there are males. And Interesting. kind of a problem. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, not females. There's twice as many males than there are I was going to say, it's the other yeah. way around. <laughs> the other way around. Just kidding. It's early. Um, so if you have a ton of males, you don't need as many males as you do females because the females are the ones that give birth and take care of the young. So you kind of need them. Um, so that's, a, that's a problem. Um, but the, some behaviors that they do, it's super cute. Uh, I saw this for the North Atlantic right whales. Um, the calves may swim on, oh no, actually this was for the Pacific, which was interesting. Um, the calves may swim on their mom's back mm -hmm. or butt them with their heads. Can you imagine the like little head butters? Um, the mom may roll over on the back and hold the calf between their flippers. Aww. Like if you can see it's that. It's like a sea otter. I know. It was so cute. Um, the, this, uh, the only thing I could find in the males, they didn't have a lot about like when they become sexually mature. I don't know if we know. It's harder to know for males because you don't have a physical thing that says, here, I'm, I gave birth. So obviously right. I'm sexually mature. Um, but one thing that's interesting is they have the largest testicles in all of the animal world. Bam. Does anybody want to guess how, how much one weighs? Oh, are we, are we doing in pounds here? Yeah, or, pounds okay. or tons or whatever, yeah. Oh, we're going as far as tons. Wow. Um, one ton. This is one ton. Oh, I was right. Wow. Yes. That's terrifying. Each one, each one can weigh one ton. It's <laughs> insane. God. Wow. That's a lot. I, I mean, like, just can you imagine just carrying that weight around? Right. I can't, or I can't imagine. Lifting that out of the water to breach. Oh my God. <laughs> Never mind the rest of your huge body. Right. Wow. No, just that alone. That's crazy. Um, so that was the, that was the fun and interesting thing I found out about males. Um, uh, so fairly competitive then, like, is that a big deal for males then? Uh, yeah. So that, I mean, the size of that, um, does go into sperm competition and the, you know, the larger they are, the likely that is, and that there's, it's, there's, they, that means that they'll mate with a lot of females most likely yep. to try to out, out compete. So that's likely. Mm -hmm. what they do have a lot of it you can do a lot of it and hopefully some of it right. gets through <laughs> <laughs> um uh the last thing i have is about uh going with the migration routes um they m mostly know the migration routes for the north atlantic and the southern right whale species as trevor already talked about again we know very little about the north pacific species um basically they calve in, in the low latitude warm waters and then they migrate to colder waters to feed during the summer months and early fall. Um, and the only calving ground that they know for the North Atlantic right whale, and I couldn't find it for, they didn't say anything for the Southern. I don't know if we know it, I couldn't find anything and we don't know it for the North Pacific. 
um, but was, as uh, Trevor mentioned, was the Northern Florida, Georgia, Carolinas. That's kind of where they calf. But I thought it was interesting that that's the only place that we know that they calf, um, at yeah. least that I could find. So um, we know quite a bit about some of these animals, but we don't know quite a bit about them. And Kat's yeah. going to talk about why, because so many died. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's multiple reasons. Right. <laughs> um, so with that, why don't we take a quick break and oh. then we can get into the status and fun facts. Excellent. We'll be right back. Okay, so um, for the status and threat section, um, for the status, I'm going to go through each one individually. And then for the threats, we'll kind of talk, they're very similar threats for all three <laughs> species. Um, so I'll kind of just talk about the threats generally and then mention specific pieces of information. Um, so for the North Atlantic right whale in terms of status, um, these guys are highly endangered, um, listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And as Cindy already mentioned, there's estimated, I think the last count was around 360 individuals mm -hmm. in the Western stock um, with fewer than 100 breeding females. Yeah, that was a big thing. It's like, yeah, and like, you know, like you said, we'll, we'll get into why. It, um, and in the Eastern stock, it, it's estimated there's only around 30 individuals in the Eastern stock. That was the, the that was the number that I could find. In, in the, the This is of the North, yeah, the North Atlantic right whale, wow. because there's those two stocks, right? Yeah. Um, the Eastern stock is, is not doing well at all mm. um nor is nor is western stock but uh, <laughs> but uh, even worse still hmm. more of them um well, and, yeah and the north atlantic right whale has been undergoing uh what they call an unusual mortality event mm -hmm. a ume um since 2017 so that means that more individuals are dying than would be considered normal uh background rate of death mm. um and again we'll get into why in the threat section um, for the North Pacific right whales, um, these guys are actually one of the rarest of all marine mammals. Mm -hmm. um, they have been listed under, as endangered again under the ESA and uh, depleted under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, the exact population is unknown for the North Pacific right whale, but it's likely to be in the low hundreds. Um, but again, it's hard to tell because we don't really have a good handle on where these guys are most of the time. So I have, uh, when I was looking at, I saw that there were, it was less than 500, but specifically for our Eastern North Pacific stock, there's less than 30. Yeah, I was going to get to that. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> that was my next you just, sentence. You just, okay. <laughs> I was pausing for effect. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's only about 30 individuals thought to make up the Eastern stock. And those are the animals that we see in our Alaskan waters or um, Northern Canada on the west coast of the US here or um, west coast of Canada. Right, so that's why I made it so exciting that they recently saw one. <laughs> Correct. Um, and again, when you are, it's, it's hard if you are in the US, it is hard sometimes to think about the North Pacific, not just including our waters, but you know, remember right. this is going all the way across to like, you know, Japan and, and um, I guess Eastern Asia. Uh, yeah. Turned around when you're thinking about a globe. I know. Um, well, I always get like Eastern and Western, but it's, you know, it's the Eastern Pacific, but that's the Western U.S. Correct. Um, and then again, for the Southern right whales are also listed as endangered under the ESA and depleted under the, uh, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, the only good count that I could find was just for individuals in Australian waters. Um, and obviously there are some other individuals that travel further afield than that. Um, but I think, again, these are just the individuals that we have a good count for. Um, and they're thought to be around 3,500 
Um, so they are wow. doing slightly better than either the North Atlantic or the North Pacific right whales. Their, some populations are slowly recovering um, after historical whaling, but it's very slow. Yeah, but and I mean, 500 compared to 500. I mean, that's huge difference. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and I was seeing that too, that they, they're basically like, yeah, the, the Southern right whales have been, you know, increasing, maybe not fast, but, right. you know, they're doing better. So yeah, and that's one of those things where, again, it is like there are still certain populations that are not recovering um, and they are very concerned about them. Right. Um, but yeah, on the whole, the picture is is looking more promising than it is either of the northern species. Okay, so with that, let's get into why there are so few of these animals. Um, so first of all, as we already talked about, um, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit right now to one of my fun facts, which is why they are called the right whales. Um, as we've been teasing you guys with right. This along. is one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is one that I think a lot of people think is an urban legend, but is actually true. So these are called the right whales because they were literally in historical whaling times. These were known as the right whales to kill. So before they even knew what the species was, they were like, oh, those whales, those are the right ones. Those are the ones you want to target. And the reason was, is that they actually, these ones float when they're killed. So if you can imagine after hours and hours of hunting whales, if the animal you're hunting floats to the surface, that's so much easier to recover and haul back to your vessel when you're rowing back. I mean, you think about like in the 1800s where this was, you know, happening most vigorously. And because yeah, well, they're so and then, slow and they're easy to chase too. Yeah, that's what, what was the thing when I heard like, okay, they're so slow, they're so slow, they're so slow. I'm like, oh, yeah. well, that it's also a reason why they did it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they're a large whale with a large head, which means right. they have a lot of um, a lot of oil that could be used for you know, lamps and, and various other things and a lot of uh, meat that could be processed as well. So the majority of the whaling effort, the commercial whaling effort targeted right whales for decades. Yeah. Um, and there were literally like tens of thousands of animals killed. I mean, I don't think they even have like a great number because there were just so many. Um, and it was, I mean, at one, I did read for the Southern right whale at one point, there were thought to be between 55 and 70,000 animals. And now we're down to 3,500 ish. Jeez. It's, and this is after Crazy. some recovery. I mean, this is after like, you know, a few, a few decades of being able to actually recover um, right. the populations. So historically whaling was the number one threat for these guys and is what completely decimated all three populations. Um, and as expected, most of the threats are anthropogenic threats um, even today. So the number one threat that we're gonna talk about here is entanglement. Um, this is the biggest issue for the North Arctic right whales, um, but obviously is a major threat for all three. For the North Pacific, I said, I, I did find that they haven't had too many cases of entanglements that they've, they've observed, mostly just because it's so hard to find these animals. <laughs> um, they have had a couple instances in the Western stock. Um, but what's interesting is for the North Pacific right whale, a lot of times they'll actually use the bowhead whale, which also inhabits those same waters as a proxy because they're a similar size-ish. Um, they're hunting in similar areas and for similar food. And they have had multiple issues of entanglement with bowhead whales. So it's a fairly, fairly reasonable guess that the North Pacific right whale suffers from entanglement as well. And when we say entanglement, this is, um, we're talking about fishing gear pretty much. Um, obviously marine debris in general, but fishing gear is one of the main issues for especially the North Atlantic right whale, um, because in its local habitat, there's a huge fishery for lobster, for crab, and a lot of these um, fisheries that require lines going down to pots. 
or just lines in the water in general. Um, and again, for these slow swimmers hunting in the water column, they kind of just swim when they're, I have seen images of them too when they're swimming where like they kind of just swim like a plane almost and they're really slow. So their, their width is gonna catch in those lines. And if you have a densely fished area with a ton of lines down and whales are trying to inhabit that same area, they're just gonna be swimming through this myriad of lines and getting hooked on them and they can't get, can't get it off their, their peck fins basically. I saw a really good video. I don't remember where it was, but they, they, there is a video. They had like an animated whale to yeah. show how, and you know, they'll, they, you said like they're like an airplane and then they'll, they, you know, they might tilt or roll and then it just, and just there's so many of them further. that they, they just get totally entangled. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in the North Atlantic right whale, it's estimated that over 85% of the North Atlantic right whales have been entangled at least once in their lives. And again, we're not talking about that many animals here. Right. So, I mean, that's a huge number of the population. Um, and as Cindy mentioned earlier, it's thought that these chronic entanglements are one of the main reasons that females are having fewer calves and having and taking longer to have them. Um, so if you imagine if you're weighed down, you know, these are already big animals. If you're weighed down by, you know, hundreds of pounds worth of lines over your lifetime that you can't get off you you're already a slow swimming animal. It's gonna be even harder to swim forward because you're being pulled down by these weighted lines who are wrapped around you. You can't forage as well. You can't necessarily migrate successfully or as quickly. You know, there, there are so many knock-on effects that it Im cause negative implications for their life history and for their ability to have calves. Because like most females, if your body is in a state of stress, typically the body right typically the body's <laughs> like nope you need to take care of yourself yeah. you're not having you're not able to have a kid right now that's not a yeah. wise thing. yep um so again it actually has much larger implications for the population because of this effect on this reproduction mm -hmm. yeah well, um, and, the, and there it's it, you know it takes so much to nurse and to be pregnant like so much more calories yeah. that if you can't get it before or during or after like it's going to be a problem. Right. And that's the thing, because this has such a, such a problem for their foraging capability. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So entanglements are the main issue for these guys. And we'll, we'll get into some more positive news about this in the fun facts part, but I just wanted to kind of lay the groundwork that this is really, this is a huge problem for this particular whale species. Um, and what also ties into that is vessel strikes. So this is another major source of, of threat for all three species, but again, specifically the North Atlantic and North, North Pacific right whales. Um, they're already slow moving, right? So you can't get out of the way of boats very quickly. And if you're tying, tied down with all these lines that are, you're entangled in, you're even less mobile in the water column, right? So you don't have that maneuverability. Perhaps your pec fins are all tangled up. So you can't actually like turn a roll because you're using your pec fins to do that. If they're, if they're, you know, stuck with lines, you can't do that very well. So vessel strikes are a big source of danger for these guys. Um, they're, especially in the North Atlantic and North Pacific right whales, their habitat and migration routes are close to major oceanic shipping routes as well, especially in the North Atlantic where we know a little bit more about what those routes are. Um, and so they're, they're basically, they're coexisting with these huge ocean, ocean going vessels most of, their most of the time. Um, so they're just in proximity to them. And again, they can't get out of the way very quickly. So they are more at risk of vessel strikes. Um, and tying into the entanglements again, a little bit, 
but another anthropogenic issue is climate change. Um, so as we've been talking about in most of these marine mammal highlights, climate change is affecting all of these species. But for the right whale specifically, um, the North Atlantic right whale has actually been changing their distribution significantly over the last 10 years. Um, and they think it's mostly in response to prey distribution. So again, if you're that big, you got to follow the food, <laughs> right? You, well, you have to go where you can eat. You're breeding 5,500 pounds a day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, you, you can, and you're that size, like you, you need to be able to eat reliably. Right. Um, so from what they've found with studying this, it seems that the prey has moved into areas that were historically less protected for right whales or areas that are, um, more heavily trafficked by vessels. So they're at greater risk of ship strike if they go to those areas. So the prey is moving into less than desirable locations, at least for the North Atlantic right whale. Um, and that those shifts are likely to continue, um, which again, for these guys, specifically for the Atlantic ones, the concern here is A, that they might not be able to find the food, but also just that the changes in distribution of the prey means that the whales themselves are going to be more unpredictable in terms of where we find them, which means it's harder to protect them. Because um, again, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, these are 3D animals moving in a 3D environment, and it can be really hard to protect them when they're crossing borders, when they're crossing international waters. Like it's, it's a difficult process. Um, well, and even so in the North, don't know where North they Atlantic, are as frequently. Yeah. In the North Atlantic, they, they, there's a part, part of the year where they have no idea where they are. Right, exactly. And so if we don't know where they are, when we normally know where they are, that's an even bigger problem. <laughs> like they're there, they're there, and then they're there, but we don't know where they're in the middle of that, where they went. So like, mm. Right. And this is the same issue for the North Pacific right whales. Again, the zooplankton distribution is, is changing because of the, um, the sea ice coverage shifts that are happening in their particular environment. Um, and the timing of when they're there is, is shifting as well, which again, that, it's not so much of an issue of knowing where they are because we don't really know where they are most of the time anyway. This is more to do with just them not knowing, them not knowing where the prey is um, and just the, the stress and starvation that could result from that. Um, and again, similar threat to the southern right whales. Right. Um, another anthropogenic one is ocean noise. So Again, if you're in these areas of heavily trafficked um, shipping lanes, um, just the general recreational traffic, um, as we've discussed in other podcasts as well, this increase in background noise affects communication, um, especially for these animals that use uh, low frequency calls. That can be particularly problematic when we're talking about larger vessels where their, their own, the frequency of the vessel itself is lower frequency. Um, and this can increase stress rates. There have been several studies on other types of whale that show that vessel noise actually does increase um, stress hormones in these animals um, when they're exposed for, for long periods of time. So again, it might not be an immediate risk, but it is one that may have implications for the health status of these animals and potentially the reproductive status as well over time. Um, might encourage displacement too from these foraging or breeding grounds. Um, and this is for, that's for all three species um, that that's an issue for. The next one is kind of interesting. So it's actually biotoxins from algal blooms. Um, so this is one that I found for the uh, North Atlantic and the North Pacific specifically. Um, I think it might be a problem in the Southern right whale as well, but I specifically was finding this for the Northern species. So this has been documented in North Atlantic right whales and in bowhead whales, which again, like I mentioned before, have kind of been used as a proxy for what threats might occur for the North Pacific right whales, because we just don't know as much about them. 
And it has thought that the increasing levels of demoic acid and saxitoxin that can be produced by some of these algal blooms um, may actually contribute to uh, ship strikes and entanglement because it, it actually messes with the neurotransmitters of the animals um, and you're just not as healthy. So again, you can't move as quickly. You might be acting out of quote unquote out of character, a little bit less risk averse. Um, I know they've done that in demoic acid poisoning in um, like sea lions, for example. Yeah, and isn't in sea lions weird behaviors? They, they show like neurological issues, like they, they yes. don't, they're not acting right. So if that's happening right. with them, yeah, that certainly could be like they don't know what they're doing. Right, yeah. and they're just they're just less able to function around some of the you know navigate mm -hmm. around some of these obstacles in the water column too. If we're talking about fishing gear and that type of thing, or, or navigating around vessels. Well, you can kind of think of it of like if you've ever taken um, you had to take painkillers or like really strong painkillers mm -hmm. or, or something for going in for surgery or something like that. Like you're kind of loopy. Like you're not going to yeah, be able to walk down it. the street normally. You could fall off the curb and hurt yourself. You know, it's yep. like same kind of you know foggy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then specifically for the southern right whales, um, which is interesting, and I think we actually had talked about this in a previous podcast, which is fun. Um, so they, again, like I said, all of the other threats that we've already talked about are, are present, but also specifically for these guys, um, actually they are, they are known to be attacked by kelp gulls, which we've talked about in another podcast where they mm -hmm. will literally dive bomb the whales and take like chunks out of their out of their skin so again we don't know if this really makes a difference to their lifespan or the reproduction but it's it can't be pleasant and it is harassment basically of these animals um and the southern right whales are also known to be predated upon by killer whales and large sharks um because again we're talking about being off the coast of australian waters where you have those big great white around um so these guys are more frequently predated upon um, and they've seen more predation attempts down there so with that, <laughs> all those depressing threats. Um, oh, let's move to some fun facts. Wait, one thing before before I go into that, um, for the North Pacific, I specifically saw that um, the they they uh, stopped you know stopped whaling them for, in the I was like thirty to forty something like that, um, but that illegal Soviet whaling was what de oh. decimated the Pacific. Continued to in yeah. specific yeah they did it for for a, for a while and they killed you know a lot of animals so even like everybody decided we're not going to kill these guys and then some people decided to still kill them and that what's really for the pacific side uh at least the eastern pacific um was really decimated so that's again yeah, that problem that's of, also, like, i mean the go ahead oh no i was just going to say those those ones are unfortunately the ones that are most at risk from climate change too because of that sea ice change and sea ice right. distribution change um and that's happening very rapidly in that area of the world unfortunately due to climate change so it's like already the most decimated population and they that's have kind that. of at, at most risk from climate change at which we are not doing it i mean at least which we'll go on to talk about at least the entanglement side of things we are trying to address um yeah climate change is but, happening much more slowly <laughs> yeah and that's the thing with like again it's we can do as much as we can to protect the animals but the animals but they're going up here they're going up here you know if, if other people aren't going to do the same thing it makes it very difficult to really effectively conserve them because we all have to be on the same page right. for climate change exactly yeah, yeah. Yep. So fun with facts. that, Come yeah, fun facts. facts. Okay. So we already <laughs> talked about my first one, <laughs> um, right whales, because they were the right yeah. whales to kill um, in terms of their Latin names, which is kind of fun. So the, they all have the same first part to the Latin name. So it's U Baelina, mm -hmm. which means true, um, true good. It means what? Sorry. True Baelin. Uh, true Baelin, mm -hmm. but also good, which is, oh, okay. is kind of an interesting 
but it, it, yeah, it's like, so it's like true or good baleen. And then mm -hmm. also the North Atlantic right whales um, species name is glacia glacialis, which mm -hmm. means true whale of ice. Ooh, it's very like cool. Um, the North Pacific right whale is Eubalina japonica and the Southern right whale is Eubalina australis. So they're just named after their kind of geographic distribution. Well, that's not as fun. Um, I know. So the North Atlantic <laughs> one was the most, most dramatic, which we like. Um, well, I wonder if they did, if that was the first one and then they realized they had to split these other ones up and they're like, ah, oh, well, okay, you guys just get named by your- Probably, yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, they're thought to live between up to between 70 or 200 years. Um, and they use earwax. I know. They can use earwax of dead animals to determine the age that they were in terms of um, when they actually died. And it's basically like looking at tree rings. They can it's see so growth cool. rings in the earwax of these. And animals. they pulled the, the plugs gnarly. are like huge. They're huge. They're huge. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Go look up earwax in marine mammals. It's <laughs> fascinating. And they can, I mean, again, it's like tree rings. They can tell all kinds of really cool stuff from the mm -hmm. earwax. It's I think they can do like stress stuff too, uh -huh. didn't they? they can, yeah, yeah, they can see they can see stress uh, stress levels. I think see years of good or bad nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. I, um, I saw they can also do it from ear bones and then eye lenses. And I've, I heard about that. Oh, I've heard of the yeah. eye lens thing before. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't, cool. I don't know if it's like true, like what they're looking at in eye lenses, but apparently they can age an animal by it. Huh. I, did, I didn't cool. know that one. That's really yeah. interesting. They do the fish or the ear bones and fish all the time. Yeah. Yeah. The otoliths. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um. So then uh, speaking to the callosities that were mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, so one of the really cool things, so these are the only whales to known to have callosities on their heads. Because they're so slow. Because <laughs> they're super slow. And they can use these callosities to ID individual animals. So cool. Which is awesome. So again, obviously photo ID is kind of our thing here at Pac-Man. Um, but just one more thing, instead of just like individual, like natural born markings, you can also use these external markings that um, build mm -hmm. up over time to identify individual animals. And because it takes a long time to lay down those callosities, um, you know, they're not changing super rapidly. So you can still identify the same animals, yeah. which I would love to look at a photo ID catalog of right whales. That would I've never so cool. thought about like how to ID them with that. So uh -huh. you really need to look at it. Yeah, it'd be really interesting. Um, then, then I wonder too, is are the other whales like, oh, your callosities are so cool looking. Like, does it go into sexual right. preference of like, I, good I like question. the way your callosities are. Right, yeah. I, like the, I like the configuration of your callosities. <laughs> Who knows, good question. Um, and then the most exciting of all, like we already talked about in terms of why we wanted to do this podcast is that one, uh, a North Pacific right whale was very recently observed by researchers like within the last couple of weeks. And we're recording this in, uh, late June of 2021. So super exciting. Um, we are actually good friends with another organization who have been looking for the North Pacific right whale for quite some time, um, mm -hmm. Deep Green Wilderness, and um, they will hopefully be releasing their documentary. looks like incredible documentary. I'm mm -hmm. very excited for it. Um, so we'll obviously we'll be letting you guys know when that's released. Talking, mm -hmm. talking about the North Pacific right whale. Yeah, the, the, and the the where they saw it was off uh, Queen Charlotte Islands, which they've renamed to Hyde 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 Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna I say think it's how you arm. say it. <laughs> Hyde Um and I apparently I was looking up and uh, I I found that they actually saw one in 2018 as well. Mm -hmm. And then if there's been acoustic detections off of BC and Washington is like 2013, but 
it was just super exciting that they got great pictures. They had drone footage of the, the, the recent sighting. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to link to some of those articles that were published on the Facebook yeah. page um, of the organization who observed them. So incredible that they're actually still seeing these animals, which I mean, is extremely, if you think about the size of that, of the Pacific Ocean mm -hmm. um, and just how few animals are, it's, it's literally less than a needle in a haystack. I mean, yeah. it's, it's extremely difficult to find these animals. So super exciting. And in terms of the entanglement thing, just to end on a happy note, um, our very good friends at an organization called SMELTS, S-M-E-L-T-S, um, they are pioneering the development of ropeless technology. So what this means is basically, again, the main issue for especially the North Atlantic right whales is entanglement in fishing lines. Um, if you can develop technology that works consistently so the fishermen aren't losing their catch, they're not out any money, they actually have a more reliable form of technology. Because another issue is that obviously if you're dealing with pots, they can break loose, the fishermen lose them, they can't find them. Okay, well, it's a loss for us, but it's still in the marine environment, right? You're still drifting with that line in the marine environment. So our friends at Smelts are developing this basically completely unique ropeless technology um, that allows these fishermen to put down their crab pots, their lobster pots, and retrieve them without the use of any lines. So it's all remote sensed. It's, you, can, you can tell exactly where your pots are by GPS um, positioning. Um, they have self-inflating floats that will bring it to the surface for you so you don't have to haul the line in. Um, and this movement is going to be huge in terms of hopefully reducing that risk to all whales, but specifically the North Atlantic right whale um, that is so heavily plagued by this issue. Um, they, they're, they're worrying that they could go extinct the, within the next couple of decades. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's that, a very it's real that threat. rapid. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, if we think back to the fact that it's, you know, over 85% of the population has been entangled at least once and they live. So it's, you know, it's, it's a horrible, horrible issue, but, um, you know, the, the great, awesome people at Smelts are really just blazing the trail for this and ropeless technology is becoming more and more of a talking point. And I know they're branching onto the West coast here as well. Um, I, yeah. And there's, there's some other organizations that are trying to do their own version of the ropeless gear. So it's really becoming a, a momentum. Yeah, and there are, I mean, there are court cases ongoing right now that are trying to move forward the ropeless technology as a viable option. Um, the government's getting behind it. So it's it's a huge movement. Um, we will link to Smelt's uh, website. So if you guys want to go read more and look at their Facebook page about what they are doing and the type yeah. of gear that they're creating, it's incredible. It's really cool. And we, we, so we've talked with Rich and, and his group and, you know, he goes out and, you know, it's, the fishermen are oftentimes, you know, very, like, not sure, like, because it's a new thing and really, is that going to work? And, and then when it's he's gone out and it's, I mean, it's come up every single time and it's worked and the fishermen are like, whoa. Right. Is, and so they're awesome. getting, they're getting better return on their cash than they were yeah. using the traditional lines. Cause like I said, you're, you know, you're talking about New England storms, like other mm -hmm. vessels going through and breaking your lines, like illegal poaching of lines and, and pots. So, I mean, this is potentially a much more cost-effective solution for the fishermen because they're getting mm -hmm. greater return. And um, great for the whales. And it's right. So it benefits mm -hmm. everyone. And um, we were extremely fortunate to be able to work with Rich. Um, he's one of our good friends. And they developed a ropeless mooring for our yeah. passive monitoring device that we were able to deploy just yesterday, actually. So, so exciting. stay tuned for more. This is kind of one of the, one of the very trial um, 
uh, I guess, ropeless technologies to more insecure uh, PAM device like ours. But um, yeah, this is only, as far as we show. know, the, the second the second one that yeah. we know of that's in mm -hmm. the water anywhere. He put one out over on the East Coast as well. So yeah, versus, yeah. we're pioneering here in the beginning <laughs> of using this yeah. technology, which is great. Yeah, and it just goes to show that it, it the the uses of this are so much greater than just mm -hmm. um, fishing equipment. Um, right, because otherwise so, we'd have to put out a line or a buoy to, exactly. to have that acoustic recorder to learn about the animals so that we can not protect them. Right. So if we can do I that without it. doing a line. <laughs> yeah, even better. Um, so we will obviously be keeping you guys updated on our specific device. Um, and you can check out our Facebook page at Pacific Mammal Research to see pictures of our deployment yesterday. But just again, a huge thank you to, um, you know, Rich and his team at Smelts for being willing to step into this void that was needed for so long and actually continuing to work just relentlessly to really push this forward and, um, and take the time to talk to the people who really need it the most, who are the fishermen. Mm -hmm. um, so with that, and, that's and all we, we are going to We are gonna talk with Rich uh, later in the year. He's, he's yes. agreed to, to come, at, come on and uh, so we'll have an interview type podcast later in the year, uh, talking to him about all of this really cool stuff. So that'll be really exciting. Yeah. So yeah, go check out, like I said, we'll link to their website in the show notes where you can go read more and they have some really cool infographics on there about how their technology works. So they do. Yeah. I just actually recently posted the video that they have of how it works and stuff mm -hmm. on our Facebook page. So it's very cool. Yeah. So that's All the right. right well, wheel. Yeah. That's, so that's a, a, the, the, the hopeful end of our episode of <laughs> it, working together. We can reduce climate change and we can reduce these, these uh, ropes that are in the water and we can help save these whales and other species as well. Um, so that's it for us this week. Uh, next week we'll do a general review. Um, and then we are going to, again, start mixing it up with some interviews later in the summer. The summer is a really busy time for researchers, uh, in many places, especially here in the Pacific Northwest. So, um, we'll probably have those after the summer ends. Um, but next week, next time we'll do a, a general review and don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And next time we promise we will have an Instagram poll for which uh, animal we do for marine mammal highlights. We just got to us usurp you this time because it was just so cool that they saw that North Pacific right whale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've been literally sure looking everybody for Everybody like, knew about it. Yeah, like we've been, they've been looking for years almost, you know, mm -hmm. like going out and trying to find this. So. Um, so anyway, that's it for this week and make sure to join us next time. Bye. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about the species we discuss, check out our blog. Head to our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M.org, to check it out. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.